This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of five to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 255 of The Freelancer Show. Today on the panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. And me, I'm Reuven Lerner. Uh, we're going to speak this time about getting started in a new niche. So, Philip... Why don't you uh, like uh, just describe uh, what the what, what the problem the sort of the problem is here? Who does it affect, and why should we worry about it? The problem is this is comes out of some questions that I've gotten recently. The problem is it's possible to identify a good way to narrow down your business, a good way to focus, and validate that it's good, and be super fired up and excited about it. And still feel held back from moving into that area of focus by the fact that you've never, you don't have any relevant proof. So when I say proof, I mean proof that you're not going to screw it up, proof that you've done this before, proof that you're a low risk choice for someone to build a website or build some software. Never or, done it before. You don't know if you'll be good at it. Well, oh, sorry, sorry. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like never done work in that particular area of focus before. And this is like a specific problem to changing your business focus and focusing on a, on a new area of focus. But also I think it's a sort of meta problem that is the problem of how do you level up? How do you grow in your business if it's, it's that chicken and the egg thing that college graduates face. They're applying for jobs where, you know, people want experience. They don't have the experience, but they maybe have relevant skills. They have interests. They have desire. So they have some of the ingredients, but they're missing this one ingredient. And that's a good example of how this problem manifests. It's, it's like, how do you start doing something new if... Um, if you don't have a track record of doing that thing. So um, that's the problem. Who it affects, ultimately, I think, is everybody at some point. If, if what you're trying to do is grow your client base or increase your ability to deliver value and therefore have a good reason for charging more, or um, if you're just trying to make a change in your business, <clears throat> so really, I think that's that's everybody who works for themselves, at least at some point in their career, is they're going to face that situation of, I, I want to do this thing, but I feel held back from doing it because I don't have proof that I've done it before, that I'm a low-risk choice, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I came up with some ideas about how you might uh, tackle this, at least from a marketing perspective. I, I think before we get into those, uh, the first thing I want to say is none of these things are really going to help if you don't really want to do it. Like if you don't, if you don't really want to move into this new area of focus or try this new thing that you've never tried before, then, um, then none of these things are, are going to substitute for not wanting it enough. So let, let me do this, Reuben. Let me kind of run. I actually have this some some notes written up because, again, I got this question from a list subscriber recently, and so I shared my answer with them, and I'll, I'll just kind of go off of those same notes. Let me kind of overview all the options that I see, and then we can drill into each one of them. Okay, sounds great. So the first thing you can do is uh, compromise. So uh, 
the person who, who wrote, who wrote me this question most recently said, um, and, and I'll just kind of give you a, a high level summary. Like they, uh, they build websites and they wanted to work, start working for a new market vertical, uh, that they'd never worked in before. And they had apparently already spoken to some potential clients in this vertical and we're getting a little bit of pushback because the potential clients said, oh, we'd like to see some work that you've done before for other companies like ours. And they, they did not have any, which is what led them, I think, to, to write me this question. So the first thing I want to mention is actually a quote that I've read in several of Alan Weiss's books. And the, the main idea is this. If someone raises an objection when you are speaking with them in a sort of a sales conversation context, that's a good thing because it means they are interested. People don't tend to raise objections unless they're at least interested in finding out more or seeing if there really is a good fit or uh, something. It it's really is a good sign if someone has some objections because it just it means they're listening. It means you have their attention, and there's the potential of moving the conversation forward if you will respond. So, and, and you're saying you're saying that objections that are voiced to you, not objections like after your meeting in the back room among themselves. True. Yeah, you might never know about those until much later. So, I, yeah, I definitely mean when they when when you are approaching a client and saying you know whatever you say <laughs> to a potential client. And they're like, well, it sounds good, but um, that's a good thing because if they were not interested, they would just be sort of more saying, well, thank you very much. That sounds great. We'll get back to you. Don't call us. We'll call you, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and, and the fact that they did not voice their objections means they just don't see enough potential there to even – uh, do that. So that's the first thing is this, it's good if someone has this objection that, oh, well, we're interested in talking to you, but we need to see some of the work you've done before. The first thing you can do is say, we've never worked with you, you know, a, a business like yours before. Uh, we've worked with plenty of other businesses. We'd be happy to show you that work and, and kind of pull out from it the parts that are relevant to how we would approach working with you. But you would be one of our first clients, and this is a new focus for us. Here's why we have this focus. And then you sort of explain your enthusiasm and your reason for being interested in, the, interested in this market vertical. And you could just offer a, a case study discount, basically. And you say, we're, we're really reducing our price for our first few clients because we know it's a little bit of a risk for you. But we don't think it's a big risk. Otherwise, we wouldn't propose it. We have a track record of doing this kind of work. We just have never done it for a business like yours. And so we'd be happy to reduce the price in exchange for if you're delighted with the work, uh, we would do a case study. So basically what you're saying is, yes, potential client, you're right. <laughs> We've never worked with somebody like you. but. Um, we'd be happy to do it for less in, in exchange for a case study. And basically what you're doing is uh, sort of a partial trade where you are trying to mitigate the risk by reducing the price and also make sure you get a case study out of it so that future clients don't have the same objection. I actually think that, that there's an important lesson there also about discounting, that if someone says, can you give me a discount? I know there are people who say, never discount your rates. I, I tend to be more flexible on that, perhaps because I live in a part of the world where if you don't discount, then you don't get the work very yeah, often. Right. But saying, okay, I will give you a discount in exchange for is smart. And exchange for then something that will allow you to get new other clients, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense. Uh, I'm a, I mean... I think it's a spectrum between never discount for any reason. It's, you know, it's uh, sends the wrong message and 
you should just have a hard and fast rule to not discount. That's on one end. And then the other end is like, well, every price is custom and you might have, you know, things that are framed as discounts all the time. And uh, I'm a little more on the discount rarely end of things because I think that's more compatible with having a premium product priced at a premium price. But um, this is definitely a situation where I think it makes sense to trade some short-term cash for some long-term um, success in focusing on this, this market vertical. It also, it also, I should say, aligns the interests even more, right? Because now, because like, normally a lot of clients, especially clients with a new consultant, are going to be like, well, all they want is my money. And here they know that they're dangling out in front of you, that you've invited them <laughs> to dangle in front of you the potential of a bad review or, you know, bad case study or like not in any event, if it goes badly, you're not going to get what you want either. So right. your interests are all aligned in favor of get this thing to work really well. Mm, indeed. So that's, I think that's one of three general options. The second one is to adapt existing proof. And just to be specific, when I say proof, I'm talking about case studies, testimonials, examples of previous work, the, the results of the previous work, if you can somehow quantify those, like, you know, this new website for this e-commerce uh, store increased sales by X, X percent. That would be a form of proof. My definition of proof is not super rigid, but those are some examples. And unless you started freelancing yesterday, <laughs> you probably have some kind of proof or could generate uh, or collect proof by reaching out to previous clients. Or um, even if you, you know, just graduated from university or just left uh, 10 years as a full-time employee and started working for yourself. I, th I think there are still, in most people's past, there's some way of leveraging that for proof. Like you could get a testimonial from a you know college professor <laughs> or something like that. Maybe that's harder now than it used to be because uh, – People sue each other for no reason whatsoever. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's changed. But at least, you know, it, it would have been possible in the world that I grew up in. And I assume there's some, some possibility to kind of reach back into your past and, and get proof. And so what I'm saying is you should look for opportunities to adapt any existing proof so that it works for your new market vertical focus or whatever, you know, whatever, however your business is focused now. So what that would look like is uh, sort of abstracting away some of the specifics and focusing on the parts of a, a client testimonial or a case study that talk about your ability to mitigate risk, your ability to solve problems your ability to focus on outcomes and help influence outcomes in a positive way. All that stuff is going to be a constant across lots of different types of projects. And so you would sort of rework any existing proof to suppress the parts that are specific to the other niches or market verticals or what have you. And that's really the second way that I recommend that you might sort of bootstrap your way into a new um, area of focus for your business. Very interesting. I mean, yeah, I've, I've definitely, I can't remember exactly when, but I've definitely spoken with people, sort of young engineers, or maybe I've just seen it online, but people saying, well, I can solve XYZ problem because it's like a project I did in college. And I think you want to sort of veer away from that because that, or, or just stating it that way, because that, might or might not be a serious project, right? But if you lay out what you did and how you did it, especially in terms of the management and the, the problems that you solve for real people, right? There's a big difference between I worked on a project for a semester for a year and it benefited these people in this way. Um, that's wildly different from 
oh yeah, I had this lab to do in class, so I did it for two days. Yeah, that's that's really um, shooting yourself in the foot if you uh, <laughs> if you take yeah. something that's potentially uh, credible or uh, impressive is too strong of a word, but you know something that would have a positive impact, and then you wrap it in these specifics that make that come with this whole basket of assumptions. Like as soon as you put college project in there <laughs> i don't know if those are the <laughs> words you use but you know th that's the idea whatever you did becomes way less impressive <laughs> because right. people picture you you know i don't know they picture some scene from um you know uh, i don't know some movie where you, somebody's got two beers and a hat on their head and <laughs> i don't know it just what i'm saying is it it really takes the glow off of it if you focus on the wrong parts of it you know, that, that makes reminds me that uh, side projects would be an option that you could pull from where it's not really social proof because you're not referencing something somebody else said, but you're referencing that, hey, I've done this kind of work before. So if the choice is approach a prospective client with no proof at all or reach back into your past and try to adapt something that you've done before or a relationship that you from your past that would serve as proof that you're reliable that you know what you're doing definitely choose that rather than having no proof at all i also just want to respond to something that you mentioned um earlier in like your your first option and i uh, just sort of a general thing you mentioned sort of being honest with them uh which is saying yes i'm new in this area and i think being honest is something that a lot of clients, potential clients, look for. Uh, they they would much rather be upfront and clear and transparent and say, "Yeah, I don't know X," than try to like BS your way into making yourself sound like an expert on X, because they will figure it out or they will likely figure it out at some point, and then it'll be really bad. So be be honest with them, be clear with them, and say, "I know X, I don't know Y so well," or "I'm I'm still new and getting into it." And my experience is they will appreciate that. Yep, I agree completely. There's, uh, it's tempting. That's a situation where it's tempting because you've got this combination of uh, desire on your part to you want to get this project, you want to move into this new area that's exciting to you, and that's good. And you sort of combine that with a sense of not everybody's going to feel this, but a lot of people are going to feel this sort of insecurity like, ah, well, I've never done that before. So how, how well could I do the first time or how much value could I produce the first time I do that? And also this feeling like, well, there's just thousands or hundreds of thousands of people just like me that this person could hire. Why would they choose me? You combine those things together and you get this sort of uh, seductive temptation to say, to kind of distort the truth a little bit. And uh, it's not like there's some right time to distort the truth, but that's definitely the worst time <laughs> it's at the beginning of the relationship in that, that, that sales conversation. So the, the third thing, this is a, a group of things. And I think this is maybe the most productive for most people, uh, potentially the most productive and interesting way to tackle this problem. The case study discount is going to be helpful sometimes, but some people are going to look at that and, and they're going to say, wait, you don't have any experience and you're lowering your price. That Those are both sort of, for a lot of people, those are going to be red flags, to be honest. And that's fine. This is just a strategy you would use one, one or two times while you're kind of bootstrapping your way in. Adapting existing proof, I think, is a great approach, but it only takes you so far. So this third category of options is to basically produce content marketing that focuses on the problems of this market vertical that you're looking into and talks about how you would address those problems. So it can look like, uh, I mean, I'm just looking at my list here. I think I have five examples. But there could be just dozens of ways that you you approach this. So one thing you could do is what people commonly refer to as a teardown. So 
thinking back to the person who most recently asked me this question, they create websites for companies. And what they could do is go out to companies or, or go to the websites of companies that are in this market vertical and produce some kind of teardown where they talk about what those companies are doing with their website, what things could be improved, what things are being done well, and why. You know, that, that's really where the good stuff is, is helping people understand uh, sort of what's going on behind the scenes with something like that. Like, why do we think your beautiful, flashy website is a piece of junk? Or why do we think your simple, basic website is going to be very effective? Um, that's, that's the kind of stuff you would be doing in a teardown. And you can do that with video, or you can do what Samuel Hullick does in his uh, user onboarding teardowns, where it's a, a bunch of annotated screenshots, basically. Or, I don't know, something else. The sky's kind of the limit there. But what you're doing is demonstrating that you're thinking about specifically the problems of this niche, of this market vertical or this audience. And you're, you're there trying to contribute to better solutions to those problems. And you haven't really had to build anything of your own. You're just looking at what other people are doing and sort of providing your, in, your opinion on it. Uh, but hopefully in a way that's valuable to people within the, the market that you're focused on. So teardowns are great because you just don't have to do much. They do require a little bit of preparation and they do need to be handled carefully because obviously if you're just excessively critical, that that's the easiest thing to do, but that's also the least helpful thing to do. I think the more, the more helpful thing to do is say, Okay, first of all, we recognize that every website that's ever been built is a compromise of some kind, <laughs> or every piece of software, or every logo design. Like, Everything ever made. Yeah, we're not going to pretend like that You know, if you hired us, you wouldn't have to deal with similar uh, compromises. But, uh, and we don't always know what those compromises are. That's the thing about teardowns that I kind of don't like, is you're criticizing somebody else's work without really knowing what constraints they faced in in building it and that's a little un there's something a little inherently unfair about that that's just kind of like standing on the sideline pointing out you know your the all the flaws with some athlete's performance and when when you could never even you know begin to do one-tenth of what that athlete could do <laughs> like what gives you the right to do that but yet i think they they can still be a useful tool let me let me just add there i, I first of all I, I love this idea of doing teardowns for, for a whole bunch of reasons. First of all, clearly, like you're putting stuff out there that people will find. And over time, they're going to, of course, see you as someone of an, ex somewhat of an expert on the subject and hopefully reach out to you. So it's like good for that kind of marketing. I always forget if that's outbound or inbound. Because they're like, you're sending it out, but they're coming in. So well, sure. it's more inbound in that the way people would generally discover something like that is through a search engine or a link on a social media property of some kind. And so they're kind of finding their way to you, even though obviously you took the initiative <laughs> to create the, in that way, every piece of marketing is outbound because you have to take some initiative to do it. But yeah, more, more inbound. Anyway. The, the other thing is, I'm sure Philip, you experienced this also in your work, but I find that I often have to give the same explanations to people whenever I start working with them. You know, I have to describe how a website works very often. Mm -hmm. I have to describe sort of database trade-offs. And there's a whole bunch of almost like pre-canned speeches that I have. And those have come over many iterations of thinking about problems and working with clients and figuring out how to describe things to them in ways that will be useful and answer their questions almost even like before they've asked them. Right. And so... I think that by doing these sorts of teardowns, it forces you to go through that thinking process. How do I want to describe this? How do I want to analyze it? And every time you do it, you're going to get a little better so that by the time you do 5, 10, 20 of them and you go and meet an actual client, even if you don't have any experience, you're going to sound like someone who has a ton of experience because you're going to 
it's going to be very smooth and obvious, not just in your delivery, but your vocabulary and your analysis is going to be so much more sophisticated. That's a great point. I think for a lot of self-employed people, the, there's this transition at some point in their career from being the pair of hands, the order taker, to something else, some, someone who is more influential in how the work is planned and executed, and you sort of become the brain, or you're using your brain to, that, that's really what your clients are buying access to, is your brain, your thinking, your experience, your judgment. And I think you can kind of bootstrap your way there with things that force you to learn more about your clients, the market that they uh, operate in. And teardowns could be a way to do that. They could be a very useful tool. I, I interviewed Samuel Hullick uh, some time ago. His website URL always uh, sort of eludes me. Let me look it up here. I think it's useronboard.com. It's easy to say useronboarding.com, but that's not it. Yeah, useronboard.com. Make sure to link to that in the show notes because that's a fantastic example of uh, Samuel just does a great job with teardowns. They're, they, they have a sense of humor in them. They're both constructive feedback and uh, critical in that he's coming from a particular perspective about how things should be done. And yeah, just a really great example to look at. And he, he really bootstrapped his current consultancy with one and only one kind of content marketing and it's teardowns. So they can, they can be very effective. So he, he's a great example to look at there. On oh, a, nice. a similar note, interviews with people in the vertical that you're wanting to get into can be a useful content marketing tool because it demonstrates a couple of things. It demonstrates that you're interested in this space. You're not just sort of casually interested, but you're interested enough to plan, schedule, execute, publish, perhaps edit interviews with people who are in the space. That takes real effort and, and you know, desire to do that. It demonstrates that you're learning and hopefully asking the right problems about the space. And, and what that demonstrates to potential clients is like your, it's not, it doesn't just demonstrate that your intelligence, but it demonstrates that you're applying your intelligence in a way that could be very profitable for that potential client. You're asking the right questions. You're trying to solve the problems that they do not yet have a solution for. So interviews could be, you know, th this person who most recently contacted me, I won't say the specific market vertical they wanted to focus on uh, because I got the sense that they were excited about how underserved this market vertical was. But I'll just say it was a particular type of food and beverage industry type of company. So it's, it's within that general yeah broad uh, market vertical. So they could interview people in this segment of the food and beverage industry, either audio interviews, they could start uh, a podcast whose only purpose is to interview those people and promote their own services. They could get people on a Google Hangouts on air and hit the record button and then publish that conversation. I think, to be honest, it's easier for me to recommend doing this than it is for people to actually do it. <laughs> I, think, I think actually doing this is a lot harder than it seems from inside my head because I've always been a, uh, without having to work really hard at it, I've, all, I've been maybe a little bit above average in terms of my ability to ask interesting questions. And just the whole idea of interviewing people just seems easy and fun and natural to me. So <laughs> I know for some people it's not, and this is not like the only way you could do this. But I think it's worth considering uh, doing an interview series as a form of content marketing. I would definitely have those transcribed, which costs, last time I checked, about a dollar a minute with a, this service, rev.com, is one that I can recommend. That gives uh, search engines, you know, something to latch on to when you have that text published alongside the interview. And for your potential clients, it shows that you... A, can get people to do an interview. That's a trust signal. 
B, it shows that you're interested in this space. And as I mentioned before, it shows that you're asking the right kind of questions. This episode is sponsored by Angular Dev Summit, coming September 11th through the 18th, 2017. Hi, it's Chuck from devchat.tv. I've reached out to some of my friends in the Angular community to put on a completely free, no travel conference for Ruby developers. We have speakers like Rob Wermald, Jeff Welpley, and others coming to speak about all kinds of topics in Angular. So if you're trying to learn Angular or you're trying to level up Angular, come check it out. The talks are happening throughout the day each day and we'll have a chat available during each session. Attending the talks is free, but you need to register. Go to angulardevsummit.com. But like, I mean, I, I guess my, my skepticism here is you're new in a particular topic. Are people really going to be willing to be interviewed by someone who's new or you, you don't think that's as much of an issue? It depends. Um, <clears throat> there are people who will say yes to almost any interview request. Uh, those people uh, look a lot like me. They have a book. <laughs> they... Uh, <laughs> They're just very comfortable with the idea that, okay, this rando who just approached me is not Oprah. I know that. <laughs> you know, they're they're not like a first-tier famous person who's interviewing me. So I know it's not going to have the same effect on my business that being interviewed by Oprah would or might. But uh, still, I'll do it because the return on investment is pretty amazing. You know, maybe it takes an hour for me to be interviewed, all told. I kind of know what my talking points are. So I don't generally have to do a lot of prep work. And I'll get something out of it. It'll, it'll, it'll at least be a backlink to my site. <laughs> you know. So what I'm saying is that there are a lot of people who are willing to be interviewed, but you, you make a good point, Reuben, that um, some people are going to be more selective in who they say yes to that just comes with the, the territory, though. I think I, I've just been surprised by when I was even more of a of a nobody, <laughs> or uh, now I'm a little less of a nobody than I was, you know, a year or two ago. But even then, I didn't have any problem getting interviews with uh, Al Reese, for example. Um, talked to somebody uh, not too long ago who interviewed Seth Godin, and. That interview came out of a two-sentence email that he sent to this guy. He just, you know, knew the right way to approach him. And it's not that different than what you would guess if you know anything about Seth Godin. And so I just, uh, you know, I think it's, I, I think it's your chances are better than you think when it comes to interviewing. Like, uh, Reuben, I'm curious for you, who would be a home run for you to interview for your audience? Ooh. Uh, or one of your audiences. I know you have several. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, let's say it's like my, my developer list. Uh -huh. uh, you know, so given that I mostly write about Python stuff, I think it might be interesting to speak to, I mean, there are a few big names. The two ones that come to mind right away, I guess, are uh, Raymond Hedinger and David Beasley, both of whom are, like, you know, very well-known speakers. Okay. And now that you mention it, yeah, I'm sure, like, given their schedules it might be hard to schedule but they seem very willing to generally sort of get out there and give talks so probably yeah. an interview they they'd be okay with it too would yeah, you be so. interested in interviewing one of them uh quite possibly yeah could i challenge you to try it um oh gosh and uh <laughs> we'll, we'll place a bet uh, my, my bet is that they will one of them one of those two will say yes to an interview request from you i bet you're right so it's not much of a bet not much of a bet. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I will um, – it might take me a little while because I'm sure. a little full. But I, I, will, I will try that. Yeah, that sounds really cool actually. Yeah, I, I just say give it a try and just report back when you uh, – you, you know, after you've tried and, and you – you may have to follow up two or three times if you're going to email. I assume you're not going to cold call them. <laughs> I have the recorder going now. Talk. <laughs> um, so you may have to follow up two or three times, but I, I think that would be a great experiment if you feel like it to give that a shot and report back and see what you uh, see how it goes. Just my general viewpoint on this is that it, it's easier than most people think to get famous people to 
accept an interview request. Obviously, there'll be exceptions to that. Obviously, it depends on having a following some best practices about the outreach. But yeah, I, I think it's I think it's more doable than it seems at first. But remember, this is just one of five different ideas I've got for you. So <laughs> I guess I'll move on to the next one. So, so the first one was teardowns. That one you can do without getting anybody's, um, you know, cooperation or without requiring anybody's cooperation. Interviews is a little more difficult because you've got to you've got to get somebody else to help you out. The third idea is to put together what I call an educational resource center, basically a collection of content online that is cohesive, that focuses on a single theme or a, a single problem or a single sort of learning outcome. And you could start by pointing to other people's content. So what I'm suggesting is nothing fancy, nothing that's going to amaze anybody. Okay, it's a very sort of humble, simple thing I'm suggesting here. But the thing is, put something together on your website person, you know, I'm saying this to the person who's trying to move into a new area of focus, put something together that provides some kind of value, even if you all you're doing is linking to other people's content and providing some context. Yeah, remember there's, I mean, I, I think a lot of people sort of forget this in the age of the internet and, oh, we have direct access to all this information, but there's a huge value to editors, right? There's a huge value to, let's say, even say curators, right? You, you can't possibly sift through all the information that's available. And so if someone says, uh, you know, has a website with links to the most interesting slash useful slash practical links uh, uh, to something, that, that's worth something. And people will be interested in it and they'll want to come see it. You know, building on that, I would say that the value of an editor or a curator now is far greater than it was five, ten years ago on the Internet because – Five, ten years ago, I, I felt like search engines like Google or, you know, search engine, bygone search engines, AltaVista, Yahoo, they were sort of were the curators because on a lot of topics of, of any kind of interest, let's say ten years ago, the first ten pages of search results were everything there was. It was sort of possible to do the curation yourself. Now, as you mentioned, Reuben, there's this explosion of quantity of information, uh, qualities, <laughs> whether that's gone up or not that's, is debatable, but quantity certain, certainly has. And so uh, there's, I think there's real value to being someone who's like, I took enough of an interest to separate the wheat from the chaff, as they say, separate the good stuff from the irrelevant or redundant or simply bad stuff. And here's, here's pointers to the good stuff. Again, it's not a, a big massive thing that's going to get you on the front page of Hacker News or the front page of Reddit or anything. But that's not the point here. The point is for you to do something that builds trust with these prospects you're reaching out to. And if you haven't had a chance to do actual work in, in a market vertical, then this is a good secondary thing you can do. So put together some kind of educational resource center. Uh, it's, it's, I think, better if you can produce your own content that's good. But if you, just starting out, if you can't do that, then just collect, I don't mean copy or plagiarize, I just mean link to other people, other people's contact, sorry, other people's content with some appropriate context around it. So people often think that in order to do that, if I'm going to give people educational content about topic X, I'd better be a fabulous expert in X. And that is just not true. First of all, it's often useful to have a newcomer's perspective. Hey, I just learned how to do X, Y, Z. The following things were really useful for me in learning, getting up to speed. Right? Tons of blog posts are like that. And if you can say, I am learning how to do this, I am sharing with you the best resources I can find on topics X, Y, Z, people will enjoy that and they'll appreciate it. And I mean, I'm sort of living proof of that. I have my Mandarin weekly list uh, now with 18,000 people subscribed around the world. 
And I am by no means fluent in Chinese. I'm, I mean, I'm getting better each time that I come to China and I'm getting better with my lessons. But I mean, <laughs> anyone who thinks that I'm fluent is wrong. And yet um, I'm putting together this list and curating it for other people. And people see me as an authority on that for some for some reason. Did so, you, you say 18,000? I did. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow, man. I had no idea. Yeah, the time has come to monetize the list, but that's for another show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. We're gonna have to do a uh, some kind of long running experiment where where you report in on that. That could be super interesting for people. Yeah, you're you're so right because other people have written about this, like Nathan Barry in his book Authority um, wrote about this, and I'm sure he's not the only one. There's, I think it's referred to as the curse of expertise, where you're. So out of touch with what beginners are struggling with and you, you know you probably have to um in your business in your training business Ruben, you probably have to guard against this where it would be pretty easy for you to be like i don't just there's hundreds of things where to a beginner it's just this mind melting challenge and to you it's it's just ancient history because you figured it out a long time ago yeah, I mean, I, I experienced that sort of most clearly when I started teaching my Python for non-programmers class. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, so we won't go into very much detail about functional programming. We won't go into very much detail about object-oriented programming. And I saw that pe people's brains were melting just from like, let's talk about lists. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I, I quickly discovered I had to jettison a lot of the content just to make it palatable to them. And my, I felt like my eyes were really open to how they're thinking and what, what their needs are educationally and what their needs are in terms of programming. They're not about to create an, a new operating system. They're not about to like deal with gigabytes of data. They just want to like write something that says, hello world, and retrieves JSON from somewhere and prints out the status. Right? If they can do that, they are super happy. So understanding what they want to do, understanding what their limits are currently, and understanding how to sort of get them from point A to point B is important. And right, right, many, many, many experts forget what it was like not to know. My, my, my rule nowadays is if I think something is obvious, then it needs explanation. Hmm. That, yeah, that's a good way to guard against, uh, against that happening. I, you know, if... I, I'm in the position now where I'm about roughly two years into really drilling into a specific thing, which is how can self-employed software developers specialize and how can they then generate leads around their, their area of specialty. And sometimes I kind of wish that I, like in a way that I did with my book, kind of create a record of what it, what that problem domain looked like to me with a little less experience than I have now. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's, I think it's valuable to do this, even if you feel like a total fraud doing it because you have such little experience in this domain, it can be a record for, you know, a year, two years, five years, 10 years down the road. It will remind you what the beginners struggle with, because by that point you will be so far down the rabbit hole so to speak that you'll forget what the entrance to that rabbit hole looks like and it could be a good reminder here's here's a little trick i do with my mandarin weekly list so every link on the list i tag as being for beginner intermediate or advanced and for, like I've, i now consider myself to be intermediate so beginner is like oh boy I remember I didn't know that last year, but now I know it. Intermediate is, yeah, this is about me. And advanced means, whew, that's hard. I can't do that. Yeah. Um, and so having in your, I forget exactly how you call it, your educational portfolio, your educational resource, resource, resource center, mm -hmm. um, some sort of indication of who this would be useful for allows people to find it and find what's interesting to them, but also allows you to sort of think about, hmm, like where am I? And over time, you'll see yourself progress. Um, and the stuff that you marked as being for beginners, yeah, what do you know? It really is for beginners, and it's so obvious to you now. Oh, that's great. That's a really good idea. 
I think I've seen that be done on educational resource centers by like color coding stuff or having a tag that has like a color coded background. Makes me think I should, I keep a running list of educational resource centers. It's not, I mean, there, there's probably thousands or hundreds of thousands of them out there. My list is just a dozen or so. But uh, I wonder if people would be interested in me dropping that in the show notes. I guess I yes, will. Yes, yes, Okay. No, you should just tease everyone and say, you don't want this. No, nah, never mind. <laughs> it's no good. You know what? Actually, I've got a link on, I've got an article on my website. I'll just link to that rather than having all these crazy links with no context in the show notes. Okay. Two more things. Let me kind of go through these a little more quickly. So the other content marketing I things you could do to help build trust with a prospect where you don't have any actual work you've done in that in that area. You could create an email course describing the process you would use to work with the client. So what you're doing here is you're saying it's not like exactly a shell game. <laughs> what I say I me mean, when I say shell game is you're not trying to fool anybody that you have more you're not trying to say you have more domain knowledge than you really do. But what you are saying is I don't have anything to offer you in terms of examples of previous projects or case studies or anything like that. But what I can offer you is I've thought through how we would approach this and I have a process. Again, this is kind of the table stakes, unless it's just like a pure R&D type of project. And even in that case, you would probably have some kind of process they use to structure exploring the problem. But it's the, it's the mark of a brand new freelancer to not have a some sort of process. Now I kind of it's not just me, other people make fun of how how agencies will say that they have a wonderful process, an amazing process. They'll feature that in their marketing, but their process looks a lot like anybody else's process. <laughs> it starts with a <laughs> discovery phase, and then it moves into a design phase, and then it moves into a development phase. And I think I got this from Blair Ends. Notice how all those begin with the letter D. <laughs> like that's the common <laughs> um, sort of trope uh, about how people talk about their process. So it's not enough to just have a process. Like ideally what you have is a process that incorporates some unique insight that you have, some unique um, or research that you've done that informs how you solve the problem or Eventually, what you want is uh, what I'm saying is what you want is a proprietary process. But again, remember that what I'm doing, what I'm talking about here is someone who's getting into a new thing. And for them, having a process reassures potential clients that they're not about to flush $5,000 down the drain or whatever it is you're charging them for this first project. Mm -hmm. So you could describe that process on your website, but why not bake it into an email course where if somebody opts into that email course, what they're doing is raising their hand and saying, I'm interested enough in how you solve this problem that I'm willing to let you into my inbox to describe how you do it. That does two things. One, hopefully that helps reassure them that it would, it would be a safe bet to hire you. And second, if they actually opt into that, that's a pretty good signal that they're a prospect. And so from a lead generation perspective, that type of opt-in, let me show you how I do my process, is not a super sexy opt-in that's going to get a wonderful conversion rate. But the people who respond to it are either your competitors <laughs> or <laughs> prospects who are closer to thinking about hiring you. And so that's why I suggest that. An email course describing the process you would use. Last thing, do what Reuven's doing with the, uh, with the Mandarin list. You're sending out, what, links to stuff, tips? What, what's on your email list? Or what, what's the content so every, you send out? Every week it's about 20 links. Uh-huh. About you know, four people learning Chinese. Yep. I use Feedly. And I just subscribe to as many blogs, sites, YouTube channels as I can having to do with learning Chinese. I sort through that, put that into a list, and I send it out to people. So I mean, it's really like I've I've now got it down to to a science in terms of the technique. It takes me maybe two hours a week. Yeah, 
Nice. So what I'm saying is, is to folks who are trying to work their way into a new uh, niche focus of some kind, that's a really good content marketing option is to, it's sort of like the education resource center to curate other people's content and link to it in a, a weekly email. And the value that you're providing is you're sorting through a ton of stuff and pulling out the best 20%, right? Uh, either do that or, and or just send a simple tip each week, two or three paragraphs, mm -hmm. um, 200 words tops, just very, very short, very easy and give people the opportunity on your website to sign up, to get a tip that helps them once a week. And you could have some curated links or it could just be curated links and it could be a sort of best of uh, roundup kind of thing. Doing that will do a couple things. It will force you to spend time in the broader world of information and uh, noise, but also there'll be some good stuff in there too that relates to the market vertical you're focusing on. So it will be a sort of uh, boot camp for you to learn more about this world that you're getting into. Uh, so it'll do that. It'll, it'll contribute to your learning and your, um, you're, you're developing your own expertise. And also it will be one of the easiest ways you can do content marketing because you don't have to generate much content at all. And it'll increase the familiarity of people who are on your email list with you. They'll start to know you by name. They'll start to think of you as someone who is focused on their market vertical It'll do a lot of good things from a marketing perspective, and it will build trust over time. So there you go. <laughs> that's uh, that's the, the long version of my answer to this person's question about how, how might you get into a new market vertical if you've never done any work there. The last thing I want to mention is, is not a specific technique at all. It's just a reminder that part of the power of having a focus on a market vertical is that you're, I don't know a better phrase for this than to say you are showing up and you're saying, I of my own volition am joining your weird little club <laughs> and deciding to be a member of this club. Doing that has a very subtle, but uh, I think very powerful effect on, on people where they're like, uh, their response is, really? That's kind of cool. There aren't many people out there who are interested in our segment of you know, the food and beverage industry. Or a couple weeks ago, I talked to two people independently who were both interested in um, focusing their, so their custom software development business on companies that are in the logistics space. So one guy was interested in logistics companies. The other was interested in maritime shipping. And so if someone who, you know, is like an IT manager in, in the maritime shipping world talks to you and you're interested in their world, uh, it's a combination of uh, gratitude and disbelief on their part. <laughs> They're like <laughs> grateful that some software expert is, is interested in maritime shipping. And they're also a little like, why it's, you know, but, but also thank you. So there's this real power to showing up and saying, I want to be in your club. Uh, nobody, your spouse thinks what you do is boring. Uh, I mean, they're nicer about it than that, but they're not interested <laughs> in hearing the intricate details of this is something one of these guys told me, he said, there's a company a very big logistics company that spends $3 billion a year sending empty shipping containers to China. Uh, uh, this is because the Chinese need clean air? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, that's the, it's an expensive problem. They would love to uh, offset that cost or reduce the cost or eliminate it entirely. Um, <laughs> oh, I get it. They bring the shipping uh, containers to China empty because they have to come away full. Okay. Right. Yeah, I, well, I, was, I was joking that maybe you've come up with an innovative solution to that uh, <laughs> that problem. Uh, we'll just pack them with uh, you know balloons of clean air. <laughs> but no, it's 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 just the nature of uh, China being. A, I don't know if this is true, but I assume a net exporter rather than a net importer. 
extraordinarily true. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, the 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 net uh, exporters are going to get a lot of sh empty shipping containers sent back to them, uh, or they're just going to send out shipping containers and never get them back. Right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, my point is, I'm sort of losing the point here in how fascinating I find this, but there's a real power to showing up and saying, I'm interested in the thing that you do. That person kind of is, is flattered in a way. And that can, I'm not saying that can fully compensate for your lack of previous experience, but it does play a role in them being more receptive to you as an outsider and as a sort of beginner in their world. It makes them a little more uh, charitable and hospitable than you might think they would otherwise be. That won't always be true, but um, I just say that to remind folks that you don't have to have the, the most extensive, impressive portfolio or list of case studies or proof to enter a new market vertical. And hopefully you can use some of the suggestions I had here to sort of work around any lack of proof. Fantastic. Fantastic. I think that's all very, very useful. And I, I, I hope it goes without saying, although maybe you mentioned this also, you can do more than one of these. You probably should do more than one of these because different people are going to be interested in different things and you'll attract different kinds of clients and be able to give different kinds of proof with different ones. I would say obviously adapt any existing proof. Use the case study discount as a sort of a plan B, if a, if a potential client is unreceptive to working with you, you, you could sort of have that as a backup plan and definitely do, you know, one or two or even three, if you can, of those content marketing approaches. Excellent. Excellent. Philip, thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. Do you have any picks for this week as well as insights? This episode is sponsored by Ruby Dev Summit, coming October 16th through 23rd, 2017. Hi, it's Chuck from devchat.tv. I reached out to some of my friends in the Ruby community to put on a completely free, no travel conference for Ruby developers. We have speakers like Uncle Bob Martin, Fabio Akita, and others covering topics from clean architecture to artificial intelligence and machine learning. The talks are happening throughout the day each day, and we'll have a chat available during each session. Attending the talks is free, but you need to register. Go to rubydevsummit.com. I do. A couple weeks ago, I picked this sort of category of USB cables that has it, the jacket is made out of metal because I have a cat that's on a mission to apparently chew through every plastic or rubber encased uh, cable in our house. Love this cat, but man. So uh, this week, I'm going to pick the next weapon in my uh, <laughs> ongoing battle with this cat, uh, which is TechFlex. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a cable wrap. And it's a, no, no. It's this kind of braided. Uh, it, generally, it's black, and it, it'll wrap around one or more cables to either bundle them together or uh, protect them, adds a sort of layer of protection. Um and yeah, I mean, I guess you would see it more in like data centers where the people who run the cables are into cleanliness and so forth. It's called TechFlex. It's spelled, I think, like you would think it is T-E-C-H-F-L-E-X. I'm on now, I think, on my uh, second 25-foot roll of TechFlex. <laughs> uh, more and more things in my house are now getting wrapped in TechFlex to, uh, <laughs> to keep this... Uh, cat that I love from uh, getting his teeth sunk into the cables. So it's been useful. It feels kind of weird to be spending $15 on something to go around uh, another cable that you already spent money on. But uh, there there you go. I guess that's my main pick. I'll also include links to Samuel Hillick's user onboard um, where you can easily find his teardowns, which I think are a great reference for anybody wondering how to do a teardown in a nice sort of constructive way and i'll also include a list of uh or link to that um article where i i uh talk about what a resource educational resource center is so yeah that's it for me for this week excellent there is increasing know, agreement i think among security experts that having ssl on all sites is a good idea and i mean i've been doing web stuff for a long time and i was around when ssl first came out and for years it has been 
the worst possible combination of a pain and expensive to install SSL certificates, which, by the way, are not really SSL anymore, but everyone calls it that, on web servers. So I think it was about a year ago that I first heard about and may have even picked letsencrypt.org, uh, which I'd heard about, and I checked it out. It looked kind of nice that it was going to be a free way of installing SSL certificates on your server. Well, earlier today, as part of preparations for launching a new product, I wanted to put SSL on my server, and I went to letsencrypt.org. And I was blown away by how incredibly easy the installation process is. Really and truly, they have made it so simple to install SSL on a server that there's no excuse for people not doing it anymore. And I say this as someone who had looked at their website before and thought, yeah, maybe. Really, it was like maybe five minutes, all free. They tell you which version. You, know, you choose your version of Linux. You choose your web server. Bam, bam, bam. It's just done super fast. And very nicely. So I strongly recommend that people take a look at letsencrypt.org. And if you have not installed a certificate on your server, you should definitely consider doing so. It's really easy and um, impressive. And I guess that brings us to the end of this episode of The Freelancer Show. Philip, thank you as always. Thank you, all of you listeners out there in podcast land. And we will be back next week with another episode of The Freelancer Show. Bye, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.